Um, this morning's scripture reading comes from Psalm 19, um, verse 1 through 6. I'm not sure if there's a slide on it, but um, it can be found on page 390 of some of your pew Bibles. All right, I'll read it out loud. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heel. May God bless his word. Thank you, Natalie, and thanks to the worship team for leading us this morning. Wait for a moment for the slides to show up. Seems like it's almost there. Well, we'll get started while they work that out. So, we're continuing our sermon series now on questions. And we're exploring different questions that we as Christians grapple with. That we struggle with. That we as Christians, that that we really struggle with thinking through that challenge our faith. And when these questions rise up, a common temptation that we have is just to shove them right back down into our subconscious. Because we don't want that challenge to our faith. We don't want that test to our faith. Because we're worried about being perceived as having a weak faith, perhaps, by those around us. And yet, as Pastor Jeff has shared, you know, when these questions come up, we shouldn't ignore them. We should embrace them. We should face them head on. Because questions are an opportunity. They're an opportunity for us to grow in our faith. They're an opportunity for us to become more confident in what we believe in. And they're an opportunity for us to know our God better. And so, here are the different questions that we've been going through that are in our schedule, that we've gone through and that we will go through. I want to make a special note for parents of our question for next week, so that you can keep that in mind when it comes to discussions that you have with your kids. But for this week, we're tackling our fifth question, which is, Is science compatible with the Bible? Now, when I was in college studying engineering at MIT, I had to take this class called Differential Equations. And during one of our lectures, our professor, uh, Professor Giancarlo Rota, threw up this equation. Some of you guys who are from my work are probably familiar with this, but it's probably unfamiliar to the rest of you. Now, what Professor Rhoda said about this equation is that he said this equation proves the existence of God. Now, 
Dr. Rhoda wasn't just a mathematician. He was a philosopher, too. And so he said, this equation proves that God exists. Now, he was referring to the simplicity of the equation, the elegance that showed that God exists. But I imagine for, for most of you, this doesn't quite jive. You know, the jump from simplicity of equation to conclusion that God exists is just too far of a leap for us to take. In our culture, you know, when it comes to proof, we like to see evidence that we can see with our own eyes and a clear set of steps, a clear set of reasonable steps that lead to conclusion. And saying that this equation proves the existence of God just doesn't quite work in our minds. And in some ways, this is how our culture views science and faith. We see them as two different spheres. We see science as being in the sphere of reason. Science is in the sphere of deductions that we can make from physical evidence that we can see. And we see faith, or the Bible, as being in the sphere of blind belief. So for a lot of people, when you ask the question, is science compatible with the Bible, that's a non-question for them. Because how can you rationally evaluate what's something that's just outside of the realm of what we think of as being reason? One famous atheist has put it, faith is belief without evidence and reason. Coincidentally, that's also the definition of delusion. And so, people around us are totally fine if we delude ourselves, as long as we keep those delusions to ourselves. And, you know, in this age of tolerance, people are very welcoming and accepting of what we believe. And people will actually go out of their way to make sure that they're not offending us with either their words or their actions. And yet, faith is still just a little bit wonky. I mean, faith isn't something that we can see with our own eyes or or taste with our mouth or touch with our hands. And so at best, to our culture, faith is irrelevant. Or at worst, faith is seen as foolish. And so I I feel like for, for a lot of us as Christians, we're embarrassed about our faith sometimes because we don't want to be seen as anti-intellectual or not intelligent, especially for those of us who work or uh, study in an academic environment. And so for some of you guys, I'm sure you've come across a situation where when someone's found out that you're a Christian, their reaction is, oh, as if they're trying to say, you're a Christian? I thought you were smart. And that starts to bring up these questions in our heads. Can we be smart and still be a Christian? Is it reasonable to have faith in Jesus? Is science compatible with the Bible? And as we think about this this morning, we're going to explore three different statements that people often make when it comes to science and the Bible. These three statements are, number one, science has made the Bible obsolete. Number two, looking beyond science to the Bible is irrational. And number three, science contradicts the Bible and our view of God. And as we explore these three different statements, what we'll find 
is that the Bible is reasonable and can be in harmony with science. Now, the pace of scientific progress over the last 200 years has been extraordinary. Our understanding of this world, of the solar system, of the universe has expanded by leaps and bounds. And what used to require faith to understand, we can now explain with science, as science has grown and grown and grown in in, in helping us understand and helping us know how the world and how the universe works. And so in some cases, some people can make the argument that science has made faith obsolete, that we no longer need science, that we no longer need faith or the Bible because science explains it all. For example, the theory of evolution explains where life comes from, even complex life, like us humans. Or the Big Bang Theory explains where the universe came from, where all the galaxies, where all the planets, where all the asteroids, where everything you see when you look up into the sky, where all that came from. Even moral authority, which you would think would be, you know, in the realm of faith and not in science, now is seen as potentially being part of science. Sam Harris, uh, another atheist, has written, there are right and wrong answers to moral questions, just as there are right and wrong answers to questions of physics. And such answers may one day fall within reach of the maturing sciences of mind. What Sam Harris is saying is that as we begin to understand evolutionary sciences better, as we begin to understand how, you know, how species survive and what rules have to be in place to enable species to survive, our understanding of evolutionary science will help us understand what is absolutely right and what is absolutely wrong. And so sometimes when we think about science in the Bible, it can kind of look like this when we go back to those two spheres, uh, where science is getting bigger and bigger and just there's no longer any need for the Bible. But science has made the Bible obsolete. Is this true? Peter Medawar, who was an immunologist in the 20th century and also an atheist, wrote, There is indeed a limit upon science, made very likely by the existence of questions that science cannot answer and that no conceivable advance of science could empower it to answer. What Medawar is saying is that science in the end is studying the physical universe. And there are certain questions that we have that would go beyond the physical universe. And so when it comes to these kinds of more existential-type questions, questions about the fundamental nature of reality or of being, science can't provide a solution to those. For example, one of the questions that Peter Medawar said could never be answered by science is the question, how did everything begin? And so for us as Christians, when we ask, how did everything begin, we turn to the very first book, of the Bible, the very first verse where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But some of you might be asking, didn't we just refer to the Big Bang? Isn't Big Bang science's answer to where the universe came from? Well, let's dig into the Big Bang theory a little bit more. So in the early 1900s, astronomers who were looking up into the sky were noticing that objects in the universe seem to be getting further and further and further apart from each other. 
their observations were that the universe seemed to be expanding and expanding at increasingly faster rate. And so in 1927, Georges Lemaitre, who was an astronomer and incidentally also a Roman Catholic priest, put forward the hypothesis of the Big Bang. And what Lemaitre said was, okay, so we see that things are getting big further and further apart. What if we, you know, hit pause on time and hit the rewind button and went backwards into time? What would we start to see? Well, we'd start to see all these objects in space get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer together, right? Until some 13.7 billion years into the past, they all collapse into this super high-density, high-energy state. And if at that point in time you hit play again, that sudden explosion of that super high-energy, high-density state is what Lemaitre called the Big Bang. And here's the funny thing. When Lemaitre first proposed this in a journal, there were many scientists who were really skeptical of this. And the reason they were skeptical was they said, you know, this Big Bang idea, it sounds a lot like creation. It didn't help that Lemaitre was a Roman Catholic priest, right? And so a lot of atheist-type scientists really didn't subscribe to the Big Bang at first. Because in the end, the Big Bang still doesn't explain where did the Big Bang come from? Where did this super high-energy, high-dense state come from? Where did space and time as we know it come from? It doesn't answer these questions. And so perhaps a better view of these two worlds of science and faith might be to say that science can answer questions when it comes to the physical universe. But science isn't able to answer these metaphysical existential questions, questions like I earlier referred to of what's the nature of reality? What's the nature of being? What's the nature of where we all came from? What, you know, questions like, what are we all here for? What is the point of living? Or even, where are we all headed? And so, what we find is that when we think about science, when we think about the idea of where we all came from, when we go back to the beginning, if we want an answer in you know, it's possible that someone could come up with an answer in science of where, you know, where the Big Bang came from. But that answer would still have to exist within the physical universe. And so then the question would become, where did the thing that caused the Big Bang come from? To really answer the question of where everything began, we have to look outside of what we understand as the physical universe, outside of space and time. And for these questions, science cannot make the Bible obsolete. For these more deeper existential questions, we turn to the Bible where we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, science has its limitations. There are certain questions that science can't answer. There are gaps in our knowledge, and science can't fill some of those gaps when they're outside of the realm of the physical universe. And yet, there's one thing 
that science does have going for it, right? Which is that science is built on top of physical evidence. I can run an experiment and see with my own eyes that something is true. And then someone else can run that same experiment and verify that what I did is correct. But when it comes to these metaphysical questions, these existential questions, these questions of faith, when it comes to the Bible or God, we can't prove through experimentation that God exists. It might be reasonable that God exists, but we can't prove that through some kind of physical experiment that we can see with our own eyes. And so, for some folks, there's an attitude that when it comes to questions of faith, when it comes to questions of does God exist or or which religion is the correct one, we can't answer that in a rational, objective way. And so perhaps it's not worth trying to solve those at all. For them, looking beyond science to the Bible is irrational because the Bible is revealed truth and revealed truth can't be proved. And so, you know, it might, we, we, we might say, yeah, God can exist, but we have to be skeptical of anything that's special revelation, right? Anything that we can't, you know, put, put through the scientific method and, and prove through experimentation. And this skepticism exists in the Bible, too. You remember the 11 disciples, when they went up to Thomas, they said, what did they say to Thomas? They said, we've seen the resurrected Jesus. And what was Thomas's response? He's called Doubting Thomas for a reason, right? Thomas's response was, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And so that's kind of the way that we often see that our culture views things like the Bible and faith. That, you know, if we pull up this, this two-spheres picture again, that, you know, that science can't answer those metaphysical existential questions, that nothing can, that we can't trust special revelation. And so for many folks, the, the, their solution is just to be resigned to the fact that we'll never have those answers, that there's a, there's a wall that we'll never be able to cross, and we'll just have to resign ourselves to, to, to never being able to know fully whether God really exists or fully what the full truth of you know, who we are, where we're going, the fundamental realities of the universe are. For them, it's an attitude of resignation, an attitude of we just can't know those things. But is this a satisfying and wise conclusion? We see in Psalm 14, it begins, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Psalm 14 goes on to say why it's foolish to say there's no God. Because Psalm 14 says, if it's reasonable that God exists, then it should be of paramount importance that we know who God is. It should be of vital importance that we understand God's character. If God does exist, we really need to know who God is because we need to understand what his intentions for the world that he created are, what his intentions for us are. It'd be like, you know, ignoring God's uh, God if, and saying that we can't know him would be like working at a company and saying, well, I'm, I don't understand business speak, so I'm just going to, 
not care about you know, what the direction of the company is. I'm an engineer, so I'm just going to focus on my task at hand and ignore whether the company is headed in a good direction or a bad direction. Or it might be like being on a train in a foreign country where you don't speak the language and they don't speak English and saying, well, there's absolutely no way I can figure out where this train is headed and so I'm just going to resign myself to, to going wherever this train leads me, whether or not that destination is actually where you want to go. Because the thing is, if God does exist, if it's reasonable that God exists, it should be of vital importance for us to try to figure out who this God is. It should be of vital importance for us to know who he is because he's the one who created everything and he's the one who holds all of what he created in his hands. So looking beyond science might be rational, but is looking beyond science to the Bible rational? Is looking beyond science to something that's revealed truth rational? Well, if we flip this around, let's assume that God does exist. And let's assume that God wants to be known by his creation. How would God make himself known to us? We can look at the universe. We can study the universe. We can learn a little bit about God's character through the universe. You know, in seeing how the universe is ordered and seeing the majesty of the universe. We can understand a little bit about God, who God is, like based on some of the songs we sang earlier this morning. And yet, to know God more fully requires going beyond the universe because God is outside of space and time. C.S. Lewis said, If there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe. No more than the architect of a house could actually be a wall or a staircase or a fireplace in that house. When we look at the way that a house is designed, it gives us some insight into, you know, what the architect is like. You know, maybe he's he's fun-loving, Maybe he's a little creative, or maybe he's very structured. But yet, if we really want to know the architect, if we really want to know who he is, we need more than just the house. We need something else. It's like an ant wanting to know what it's like to live in the human world from his you know, quarter-inch perspective. It's, or it's like a fish swimming in the ocean, wanting to know what it's like to live on dry land from the ocean. There are certain things that the ant or the fish can gather about that world that they don't understand, that they're not a part of. But their perspective is limited. The world that they live in is limited. And so for them to truly understand that thing that's outside of where they are requires something more. If as a human I wanted to explain to an ant what it's like to be a human, I have to figure out how to communicate in ant language, right? And, and, and talk to the ant and say, this is what it's like to be a human. Or dare I say it, even become an ant myself. And so, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So if we think about, if we believe that it's reasonable that God exists, and if we believe that God would want to make himself known to his creation, 
it's reasonable to look beyond science towards revealed truth. Because if God is outside the constraints of time and space, then necessarily we would have to rely on revealed truth to show us who God is. Looking beyond science to the, to the Bible is rational, is reasonable. So science can't make the Bible obsolete. We've seen how looking beyond science to the Bible is rational, is reasonable. And those are steps towards seeing how the Bible is reasonable and can be in harmony with science. But what if science contradicts the Bible? Because in the end, as Christians, you know, we don't take the Bible on blind faith. The Bi- we, we look at the Bible with reason. And if science contradicts the Bible, then we have a problem. Our faith is undermined. If science contradicts the Bible in our view of God, then everything we believe in is for naught. Let's pull this up again. Now, the Bible, even though it answers these metaphysical questions, it does make certain claims about the physical universe, right? And the Bible can be looked at with reason. And so as we grow in our knowledge in science, there can, there can be overlap between what we learn in science and what we see asserted in the Bible. And so here's the problem. If that overlap contradicts each other, then, then our faith is meaningless. Now you might say, why is that the case? Well, four weeks ago, Pastor Jeff preached about our view of the Bible, that we believe that the Bible is the fully inspired word of God. We believe in a God who is sovereign over the whole universe, a God who is unchangeable, a God who's outside of time, and so he's the same from past, present, and future. And so, given our view of God and given our view of the Bible, if there's a part of the Bible that's wrong, that would bring into question whether the rest of the Bible is actually the divinely inspired word of God, right? If there's a part of the Bible that contradicts reality or that contradicts itself, then we have a problem in our faith. And so, does, so then, so in that scenario, all that we would have left is science. And so the question is, does science contradict the Bible and our view of God? Well, there are a number of reasons why people come up with different contradictions, see different contradictions between science and reason and the Bible. One of these reasons is because sometimes the conclusions that we come up with are drawn from a lack of evidence. Sometimes we infer things that are, that, that we, that are based on certain assumptions that we assume are true, that we assume probably are true, but we haven't actually fully explored things totally deeply, or we just don't have enough data. I'll give you an example. For a long time, scholars assumed that the nation of Israel didn't exist back in ancient times. That, that back, you know, during when the Bible, when we read about King David, King Solomon, that whole period, that, that that stuff never really happened. And the reason scholars didn't believe ancient Israel existed back then was because there was no archaeological evidence that showed that Israel existed. There was no, nothing they ever dug up that referenced Israel or Judah or, or David or Solomon. And so the conclusion that people came up with was, well, therefore, Israel must not have existed. But then they dug up 
a tablet called the Mesha Steel. The Mesha Steel was dated to about the 9th century BC. And in this, in this tablet was engravings by King Mesha of Moab, who you can read about in 2 Kings chapter 3. And suddenly, there was evidence that showed, you know, evidence on a tablet that referenced Israel, that referenced King Omri, that referenced stuff that happened during that period in the Bible. And so, perhaps Israel did exist back then. And so here's the thing. Sometimes, you know, in the end, when it comes to data, either archaeological data or data in science, a lot of the things that are concluded are based on fundamental assumptions or are based on probability, right? And when it comes to these fundamental assumptions, some of them, you know, we can be reasonably confident or true. Like if I say one plus one equals two, I think we can, you know, technically we can't prove that one plus one equals two. But we assume it's true. And in the same way, in science and in archaeology, a lot of other things are assumed as true, too. But sometimes those assumptions aren't always... We can't always be certain of those assumptions, but we have to draw certain conclusions. And so when it comes to contradiction between science and the Bible, sometimes contradiction happens because either in the biblical realm, we make conclusions that we think are certain but are based on not enough data, or in the scientific realm, we make conclusions that we think are certain but aren't based on enough data. But the thing that people often think of when they think about the conflict between Bible and science is creation, right? Is Genesis 1, is evolution. And you know, there are a lot of different views that Christians hold when it comes to Genesis 1. I'll go through a few of them right now, but there's something like 12 of them. We'll just go through three or four really quickly. One possible view is that Genesis 1 refers to seven literal 24-hour periods or day ages. For these folks, they deny evolution. They interpret scientific data differently. Second, some people interpret Genesis 1 as seven symbolic days. For folks in this camp, some of them might be theistic evolutionists, which means that they believe in evolution, but they see God as directing the steps of evolution. Yet others believe in something called the framework hypothesis, which is that the seven days are literal days, but they're literal days from a different perspective, that God exists outside of space and time. And so the seven days are, are looking at it from a different point of view. They're not chronological in time the way we think of time, but they're chronological in some other different, uh, from some other different view. Now, we're not going to answer this question today because we're running out of time. But I will put forward one thought, which is, When we read the Bible, we want to read it understanding the authorial intent. And when we look at Genesis 1, the author of Genesis wasn't intending for Genesis 1 to be a scientific, rigorous explanation of where life and where the world came from. Gordon Hugenberger, who used to be pastor at Park Street, said that the main point of Genesis 1 is that the God of redemption is the God of creation. That the God who rescued Israel from Egypt isn't just a God who, you know, who only governed over Egypt, but the God who rescued Israel from Egypt is the God of the entire universe, is the God of all things, and therefore is a God that they can trust, a God that they can follow, a God who they can worship and trust that he will be with them no matter where they go. Hugenberger's argument is that when correctly interpreted, Genesis neither contradicts nor encourages evolution. 
And so when we think about whether science, science contradicts the Bible, I think we can argue that science not only doesn't contradict the Bible, science enriches our view of God. Natalie earlier read these two verses from Psalm 19, which describe how the heavens proclaim the glory of God. Some of you met Ken Barnes on Friday. Ken Barnes used to be a chaplain at Oxford University. And one thing that Ken Barnes, whoops, one thing that Ken Barnes shared, uh, has shared with me and shared with others, is that while he was at Oxford, there were actually more Christians in the physics department than there were in the theology department. Think about that for a minute. There are more Christians in the physics department than in the theology department. And this matches my experience at MIT. Because <clears throat> when I was at MIT, there were more Christians at MIT than there were at Harvard. This is just an excuse to put up this slide. <laughs> so, but, you know, sometimes I reflect and I think that I actually think for me, it's been easier for me to be a Christian having been trained in science and engineering than it would be had I been trained in the liberal arts. And the reason is, in science and in engineering, as I learn, I see the beauty of the world and how things work, but I also see just how much we don't know. And this mystery of how much we don't know can drive me towards God. And it's not just the folks at Oxford. It's not just the folks at MIT. You know, if we go back in history, there's Galileo, who everyone thinks of as, oh, in conflict with the church because he was put on trial for heresy. And yet, Galileo didn't see his findings as being in contradiction with the Bible. He saw his findings as, he saw his discoveries as revealing God's excellence. Or there's Isaac Newton, who many of you guys know as the guy who sat under the apple tree and came up with the theory of gravity and developed Newtonian physics. But you guys might not know that Newton was actually arguably an even better theologian than he was a scientist. One of the archbishops in England at that time said to Newton once that, you know more divinity than all of us put together. Today, there's John Polkinghorne, who's uh, was a professor of particle physics at University of Cambridge before uh, he became an Anglican priest. There's Francis, whoops, there's Francis Collins. That's not Francis Collins. There. <laughs> there's Francis Collins, who was head of the Human Genome Project in the U.S., and now he directs the National Institutes of Health. There's Alistair McGrath, who has a Ph.D. in molecular uh, biophysics. And then he became a Christian and then decided he liked school a lot, so he went back and got a Doctor of Divinity in Theology. Since I went to MIT, since I went to MIT, I have to mention Roz Picard, who's a professor in the MIT Media Lab, and of course, our, our very own Dick Yu, who was a professor in mechanical engineering and ocean engineering, used to be the associate dean of engineering. And the list goes on and on and on. If you go into Wikipedia and Google Christians in science and engineering, here's the list that you get from the 17th century until today. And the thing is, for all these people, what they see in science isn't contradiction with faith or the Bible. What they see in science is beauty, a beauty that helps us get a glimpse of who the Creator is, a beauty and a mystery of how much we don't know 
how much, we, how, how much science actually drives us towards a belief in a creator because of what we don't know. <clears throat> and so we've seen that science cannot make the Bible obsolete. We've seen that looking towards science beyond, looking beyond science towards the Bible is rational, is reasonable, and that science doesn't contradict the Bible but can enrich our view of God. As Christians, we don't have to abandon reason. The Bible is a very reasonable book. And, but sometimes questions come up. And when those questions come up, we're in, I, I think God wants us to engage with it. God wants us to, 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 to think through things. Because God wants us to know him, God, who is the God of order, who is the God who created all of creation, who is the God of reason. Roz Picard, who I earlier mentioned is a professor at MIT Media Lab, recently published her testimony in Christianity Today. And she wrote in her testimony, I once thought I was too smart to believe in God. Now I know I was an arrogant fool who snubbed the greatest mind in the cosmos, the author of all science, mathematics, art, and everything else there is to know. Today I walk humbly, having received the most undeserved grace. I walk with joy alongside the most amazing companion anyone could ask for, filled with desire to keep learning and exploring. When it comes to science, there's kind of two directions we can go. One is a direction where we become more confident in what we can see with our own eyes, what we can taste with our mouth, what we can touch with our hands. And we become so confident in what we can see with our physical senses that we believe that we can figure it all out, out ourselves based on what we can see. That we, can figure, that we have the ability to, to, to self-empower ourselves as, a, as humanity to be able to know it all through science. But there's the other point of view. The point of view where when we look at science, we see that there's a beauty in science, that science shows us a lot about God's creation, shows us who he is, shows us how awesome, how powerful he is, shows us the majesty and the glory of God's holiness. We see in science how God is indescribable, uncontainable. We see how amazing God is. And we get a glimpse into God's perfection, a perfection that we can't hope to attain. And so science, for Christians, also teaches us humility. A humility that there is more that we just don't know. There is more that we need, that we can't know just by studying through experimentation. That there is, there is a perfect God out there, a perfect God who we can't reach on our own, and yet a perfect God who in his love, in his mercy, reached down to us and showed us who he is through the Bible, showed us who he is in coming down himself in Jesus, showing us his love, showing us his grace, showing us his mercy. And so science drives us towards this God, a God who we love and a God who we worship. Let us pray. Father God, you are amazing God.
You created the heavens and the earth, and you sustained them. God, we thank you that you're not far away, but you are near. We thank you that you're a God who did not condemn us to judgment because of our inability to reach your perfection, but you're a God who in your love and your grace revealed yourself to us in the Bible and in the person of Jesus. As we learn more about this wondrous universe you have created, Lord, we pray that you would help us not to grow proud in who we are and what we can attain, but to grow in our awe of who you are, the creator of the universe, to grow in awe of the mystery that we see, and to grow in humility in our need and reliance for you. In Jesus' name.